If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. He felt that it was important because he was a, a, a kind of late 19th century nationalist figure. He wanted to assert France's role in the world, but he was only too aware of France's diminished role. So for him, grandeur wasn't some kind of absurd idea that France could become uh, the equal of America or the Soviet Union. He never believed anything like that. He was, therefore, always a mixture of a dreamer and a realist. And it's that that makes him very difficult to pin down. That was Julian Jackson talking about Charles de Gaulle. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today you'll be hearing from the historian Professor Julian Jackson, who's just written a heavyweight biography of the 20th century French leader Charles de Gaulle. He spoke to our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. I'm here today in Penguin's offices in London with Julian Jackson, a professor of history at Queen Mary University of London and one of the foremost British experts on 20th century France. The subject of our podcast today is on 20th century French leader Charles de Gaulle, whose life is charted in a new biography by Professor Jackson, A Certain Idea of France. So de Gaulle was a central figure and an extraordinary one in French 20th century history. Could you perhaps start by introducing us to your comprehensive biography and how you approached his life? Uh, yes, well, perhaps sh- should we just begin with a few, just the basic story of de Gaulle for uh, people who don't know it at all? Uh, because I, I think that he is, um, he's probably the most written about Frenchman of the 20th century, but um, that's because he probably was the most important. He's probably the most written about person in French history since Napoleon. Um, so let's just go over why he matters. And I think there, there are three reasons why he matters. 
or even four reasons. The first is he's the man who probably everybody knows came to London on the 18th of June or came to London on the 17th of June 1940 when France had been knocked out of the war or seemed to have been defeated and made a speech on the BBC on the 18th of June where he said that all was not lost, that this was the beginning of a world war and that it was a call to resistance from London. And that was an extraordinary act. He was an unknown figure. He was just a junior general. Most French people didn't know who he was. They didn't know his, they couldn't spell his name. They certainly didn't know what he looked like. And four years later, almost to the day, a little bit more, he returns to Paris in August 1944 to a liberated city. He is um, universally or almost universally celebrated as the leader of the French resistance and he has become uh, the head of a new provisional government in France and if France can claim in some sense to be among the victorious powers in 1944, not an occupied and defeated country like Italy and Germany, but a country that in the later stages of the war managed to be on, uh, among the allies, Britain and America and Russia, that's thanks to de Gaulle. So that's the first um, astonishing achievement, which meant, by the way, that uh, in 1945, when the United Nations was set up, France got a permanent seat on the Security Council, recognising her status as a great power. Now, it might have happened without de Gaulle, but certainly he helped it make it possible. The second thing I think that is, is very important is that he was out of power after that throughout for 13 years until 1958. From 1946 to 58, he was out of power. And he came back to power again in 1958 when there was another massive crisis in France, almost in some ways as dramatic as the crisis of 1940, when there was a coup d'etat, a kind of coup d'etat by the army against the government in Paris because the army felt that the politicians were selling out Algeria, which was part of the French Empire, in fact part of France. And this caused something on the verge of a civil war. So at that moment, de Gaulle very cleverly manoeuvres himself back into power. And over the next four years, he leads, one could say, Algeria to independence. Now, it may not be what he wanted to do at the beginning, but nonetheless, by 1962, Algeria has become independent and the French have, in some sense, put that conflict behind them. So solving, up to a point, the Algerian crisis was a great achievement. And then the third, and possibly uh, the most long-lasting in some sense, was that the condition that de Gaulle put for returning to power in 1958 was a reform of the constitution. He said, I'll only come back if France completely changes her constitutional arrangements. And the result of that is the Fifth Republic, the system that France still has today. And de Gaulle's key idea for the Fifth Republic was a strong, directly elected president. 
because he felt that previous regimes were too weak, there was government instability, and that there needed to be a regime which gave greater power to the president. And that is the regime that uh, you could say Emmanuel Macron, has, who's recently much talked about, has, was elected to become president of last year, and very clearly is inspired by the leadership style of de Gaulle. And in creating the political system that France has today, I think you could say de Gaulle did more than just uh, create uh, a republic that seems to work. It's not perfect, but no system is perfect. But what he also did, or what, and I think he self-consciously intended to do this, was to end, you could say, uh, two or 150 years of French history because the French had been deeply divided since the revolution between those people who looked back a bit nostalgically to a more uh, a regime where there was greater power in the government, the executive, almost like a monarchical regime, and those who looked to a more um, fragmented parliamentary system. And de Gaulle, who had been a monarchist in his youth, created what he explicitly called a, a republican monarchy. And so you could say that his achievement is, in some sense, to bring together the two traditions, the republic on one side and the monarchy on the other side, which had divided France since 1789. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, you could say there is no, not everybody likes the Fifth Republic that works, but nonetheless, there is a broad consensus about the political regime for the first time since the revolution. And that is an extraordinary achievement the approach of my book was, mm -hmm. which I didn't completely answer. And the approach of the book, um, I think my starting point is that de Gaulle is very, very difficult to pin down. Biographers, um, generally, biographers tend to admire their subject, but not always. Obviously, Ian Kershaw, when he wrote the biography of Hitler, I don't think he writes it from an admiring point of view. But generally, it's, um, it's difficult for biographers to escape a certain seduction of the person. You don't really want to spend four years of your life working on somebody you absolutely um, uh, hate. Um, so there's a danger when you write a biography in a kind of hagiography you're just celebrating. And obviously the account I gave of de Gaulle's achievements sounds like that. But I think my approach is uh, the more I looked at de Gaulle, the more I thought that he was, and this doesn't sound necessarily like a very fascinating um, conclusion, enormously complicated. The moment you say one thing about him, you almost find yourself having to say the other thing about him. Let me give just one example of that. There's a, there's a common view about de Gaulle, that he was a kind of um, narrow nationalist fantasist, that he thought that France was... Uh, he had a, a completely inflated and anachronistic idea of the role that France could play in the world, that he was a, a yeah, kind of fantasist, a sort of Don Quixote figure almost, tilting at windmills. And that was a very common view in the 1960s when he, we find him um, criticising America, um, trying to, as it were, assert France as a great power. Um, the very first line of his war memoirs is all my life I've had a certain idea of France. And that paragraph ends, France cannot be France without 
grandeur, grandeur, greatness. And so for a lot of people, it seemed to go, this is a slightly absurd figure, this person who believes in a France that um, actually in reality doesn't exist any longer. But in fact, the more you look at de Gaulle, the more you realize that he knew that perfectly well, that he was in no sense an illusionist, but he was, he felt that it was important because he was a, a uh, a kind of late 19th century nationalist figure. He wanted to assert France's role in the world, but he was only too aware of France's diminished role. So for him, grandeur wasn't some kind of absurd idea that France could become uh, the equal of America or the Soviet Union. He never believed anything like that. He was, therefore, always a mixture of a dreamer and a realist, and it's that that makes him very difficult to pin down. There's a famous comment to slightly um, jokey comment that he made to the um, to the novelist André Malraux, who was a great admirer of him, one of the leading Gaullists in the 1960s, who wrote a, a book about his last conversation with de Gaulle in 1969. And Malraux claims, if it's true at least, that he asked de Gaulle, so who would you compare yourself to? Would it be, would it be Napoleon or would it be Joan of Arc? Would it be Louis XIV? And de Gaulle said, obviously slightly jokingly, he said, no, no, if you want to compare me to anybody, it's Tintin. <laughs> Why Tintin? Because Tintin is a small, is, is, a, is small, is a small, is a boy, a small boy in a world of big, of adults, and he survives by his wits and his cunning. And so that, in a sense, is de Gaulle was a showman, but he also used a lot of wit and cunning. So I suppose my starting point is that de Gaulle is very, very difficult to pin down. And the moment you say one thing about him, you could say the opposite. What makes it possible to do a new biography? Because as I said at the beginning, there are immense numbers of biographies of him, um, in, in both in English and in French and in other languages. In French, one comes out almost um, every year. I think what makes it possible to do this biography is partly as a British historian, I have a slightly different perspective from the French. I can look a bit from the outside. But also, uh, for the first time a few years ago, de Gaulle's archives, the archives of him as President of the Republic, became open to historians and researchers. It was possible to see them with great difficulty before. So we have a whole new treasure trove of material, if we want to study De Gaulle, which makes it possible um, to, I think, to, to rethink him. I mean, that's a great overview of, of De Gaulle's achievements. And, and the first part of your biography is called De Gaulle before he became De Gaulle, uh, in quotation marks. And what you just outlined there is the Charles de Gaulle, as many would know him. But could you perhaps take us back before 1940, when he became the voice of Free France, and um, his achievements, his military career before that? Well, he was of that generation of young Frenchmen who were um, dreaming in their youth and adolescence of revenge over Germany for the humiliation of... He was born in 1890, uh, so he was... Um, um, the, the defeat of France by Prussia had happened 20 years before he was born. But that memory was an open wound for people of his generation. And so for him, he was, he was um, looking forward, he quite explicitly says, to the war of the breakout of 1914 as a chance to um uh, for uh, to be a hero but to be a hero in the service of france with whom he had an almost religious mystical relationship his relationship to the idea 
of France to the France almost as a as a almost like the Virgin Mary, you could say. As a he talks about France in his in the first page of his War Memoirs as like a, a Madonna in a fresco. That's an explicit religious. Um, analogy, and he also talks about France like a princess in a fairy story. So there's this really extraordinary identification with um, not just the idea of France, but almost the physical embodiment of France. So that's what he thinks he's going to do in the war. He's wounded three times, and then he's captured. Then he's taken prisoner at the terrible Battle of Verdun in 1916, and for the rest of the war, he spends to his almost eternal regret as a prisoner of war. He tries to escape. Uh, he does escape, in fact, I think uh, seven times, six or seven times. But the problem is that the problem isn't so much getting out of the camp, but it's actually uh, escaping in per permanently and making your way to the frontier. He never succeeds in doing that. He's not a person you could easily miss. That's part of the problem. So the result is that he feels a sense of waste and bitterness in 1918. Um, he says about the armistice, the defeat of Germany, uh, when the armistice is signed in 1918, that obviously this was a wonderful day for France, but it was the saddest and one of the saddest and bitterest days of his life. So he has a sense in 1918 of time to be to make up for lost time, as it were, to almost redeem him. So he had not been a coward, obviously, he'd just been captured, but he had this passion to, and there's a kind of, there's deep, there's enormous ambition, as it were, to overcome what he saw as this humiliation, which I think he probably, um, after, he did redeem himself, as it were, by what other things that happened, but I think it was always there, at the back of his mind, that he had not, the, the First World, he had not been a, had the chance to prove himself as he wanted in the First World War. Something very interesting that you um, you explore in your book is it's almost his uncanny knack for um, seemingly uncanny knack for foresight, and it, it, it's during those interwar years that he 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 expects another conflict because he um, he can qu quite clearly see the wounds that have been inflicted by the first conflict and, and is expectant of the second one. No, I think I think that uh, we could say not just that. Uh, it, it, well, basically, in nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, De Gaulle was convinced that. Um, Germany would um, not accept the defeat, and he's not one of those people who felt that Versailles had been too harsh on Germany. He felt quite the opposite. And in that, he, he was very much in the company of a lot of conservatives of his generation and so on. But, um, um, and he, he predicted many of the things that would happen, but he's far from the only person who did that. But I do think that he does have, um, and I could actually sort of generalize this to the whole of his career, because he has an extraordinary historical sense, he is absolutely steeped in history, history and literature, but history above all, he does really have um, an extraordinary a prophetic, makes it almost, uh, makes it sound almost supernatural, that would be the wrong thing, but he, his knowledge, his understanding of history means that he, he, he is actually able to read the world um, and um, so, yes, he does think another war's coming. Um, he does have some very um, interesting ideas about the modernization of the French army in the 1930s, the need not to fight the same war, that the, that the next war is not going to be like the last war. He, he was one of the theorists of, of offensive warfare in the 1930s and so on. But if we just keep on this idea of him as somebody who could really... Um, see the future as putting it too strongly, but who had a, a great, um, who often got it right. The speech he makes in June um, 
1940 from London is actually an extraordinary speech because what he says is France is not defeated, but of course France had been defeated, but he says this is only the first battle in what will become a world war, a war in which um, we, the French, have their empire behind them, though in fact much of the empire didn't rally to him. Uh, the British, we have the, the British and their empire, and behind both the British and us, there is America with its huge, obviously America wasn't yet in the war, economic power. And we know that he had, um, he said to people very early on that he fully expected the Soviet Union eventually to come in on the side of the Allies or to be attacked by Hitler. So that's, um, he's not the only person who saw that, but that is extraordinary, you know, that's, that, that is an extraordinary reading of history. And we could just take another one during the 1950s. It comes from a kind of pessimism, though. It comes from a sort of pessimism about international relations, because de Gaulle never really much believed, he didn't see the antagonist Germany fundamentally, the antagonist for him in 1940, for 39-40, wasn't Nazism, it was Germany. It was, and similarly, because he read, he believed that the fundamental motor of human history is the nation state. So he never really believed in ideology. So it wasn't Hitler the Nazi, it was Hitler the incarnation of the desire for Germany to dominate Europe. And if you fast forward, in the period of the Cold War, he was throughout the Cold War in the 50s and 60s looking forward to the end of the Cold War because he believed the Cold War was would, would not go on because... Um, communism. Uh, he never talked about the Soviet Union. He always talked about Russia. And he said often that the, the Soviet, that, that um, uh, Russia, the old Russia will absorb Bolshevism like blotting paper absorbs ink. In other words, um, there is nothing eternal about the Cold War, the, the idea that there should be two blocks, America and uh, the Western Bloc and the Eastern Bloc. So he had this capacity really to see, um, because he, 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 looked, he read the world through a long um, and deep understanding of history, um, it gave him uh, you know, the, uh, sometimes the most sort of extraordinary prophetic. He didn't get everything right, but he got a lot of things right for that reason. I wondered if you could introduce us to um, de Gaulle as, as a man, his voracious reading, his, um, you, you say in the book he's very passionate, but he has trouble expressing emotion. Um, can you perhaps introduce us to de Gaulle the man? Yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you asked also about de Gaulle before 1940, mm. before he becomes a big figure. Um, I think what, what before 1940, he was a soldier. That, that's what he was. But he was a very intellectual soldier. He was very much a, um, uh, he, 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 he he wrote, in fact, in the 1930s about the modernization of the army and so on. But what he was really interested in, in was, was writing quite cerebral, quite dense literary studies of leadership. And he wrote a very famous book about leadership. And he, he really had thought a lot about, in a way that, that is actually quite unusual for uh, political leaders. Churchill, for example, in 1940, or Roosevelt, I don't think they'd ever written, they have probably thought about leadership but they hadn't um, they hadn't um, 
meditated upon it in a cerebral a way as the goal. And I suppose the vision of leadership that he produces is that the leader needs to be, uh, it's a rather bleak, cynical view of leadership, that it's, a very, that it's solitary, that the leader needs to show, it's rather Machiavellian, you know, he doesn't necessarily talk about Machiavelli, he needs to show hypocrisy and ruse and cunning and secrecy and mystery and hardness. And in some ways, I think uh, those are almost, I think they're qualities he believed that a leader has to have. And I suspect most leaders do have all those qualities, actually. There's also charm, but charm wasn't something he really had. And in a way, I think his his portrait of the leader is a kind of a self-portrait. He was uh, a very... Um, ex- un- he, he was somebody who found it very difficult uh, to develop any close personal relationship with with anybody outside his immediate family, he was immensely tall. He was about six foot six, in a country, and that's this is in a country where the average age when he oh sorry the average height when he was born was more around sort of five foot five. So he was he was a giant. He was also I'm sure everybody um, listening to this this podcast has seen pictures of him, and he's a very peculiar looking figure with this um, no chin, this huge nose. Um, sort of strange drooping eyes and I do think that one of the things about him actually um, is that the body this strange huge body which actually was part of his aura because when people saw him you could not but be impressed by the size and possibly the oddness the physical oddness of the person in front of you and when uh, people were who didn't yet hadn't yet met him asked others what he was like in the war. The first words were always, "He's very big." So there's a kind of imposing physical presence. But I think also there was a kind of awkwardness about his body, which made him. I think he was ultimately quite a shy man, personally, and the shyness manifested itself in a very sort of almost cutting brutality and rudeness. I mean, he could be unbelievably rude. He could be strategically rude, but he could also just be naturally rude. He didn't really do small talk. He was... um, he could be. Uh, he was. He was prickly, suspicious. Um, I think he was burning with emotion under the surface, but he found it very, very difficult. Partly because of the kind of generation of conservative French Catholic army officers he came from to express emotion, but I think that was also about himself. No one. The, the contrast with someone like Churchill, for example, Churchill was fantastically emotional, always crying at the first opportunity. The goal was um, whatever was churning was churning underneath him. And what people saw was this rather terrifying, distant, um, cutting and seemingly um, um, contemptuous figure. A lot of people would write to him in the war among his close supporters who became devoted to him, said if you would be a more successful leader, if you could overcome the kind of contempt for humanity that you seem to express. So I think he is a very curious, and I think to one thing to add to that, he was a very private man. He comes from a generation that didn't do emotion about their private life. That was partly generational but also um, it's, it's very well known that he had a there was a, a, a very 
um, tragic um, personal life in the sense that um, he and his wife, both very devout Catholics, had their third child who was uh, born with uh, called Anne, was born with Down syndrome in the 1920s. Very, very severe Down syndrome, not just slight, but really dramatic. I mean, she couldn't, she could really never speak. She could not feed herself. She died when she was 20. Other families might have put the little girl into an institution, but the, the girls never considered, to the best of my knowledge, never considered doing that. And so this little girl was with him throughout his life. And you just imagine arriving in London. I mean, his wife joined him about two weeks later. But wherever he was, Anne, this little girl, is somewhere in the background with her nurse and the girl's wife looking after her. So I think that accentuates the, um, and all, the, the, the sense of privacy, the sense that this is a very a family that doesn't show itself to the world. They never had another child, almost certainly that was a conscious decision. And so for all those things, de Gaulle, to the, 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 the man de Gaulle um, is, is, uh, is not, a, not a charmer. If we take other leaders like Roosevelt, Roosevelt had this extraordinary capacity to charm anybody. He, could be, he was utterly ruthless. He had all those qualities that I mentioned about hypocrisy and ruse, but he was a charmer. De Gaulle was no charmer. That wasn't part of his repertoire. Could we talk about his relationship or experiences with uh, Philippe Pétain? Because obviously they are playing quite different roles in, in the fall of France, and then we see this, um, I don't know, fracture is the right, right word, perhaps, but we talk about the, d the different routes that these men took. Yeah, well, well Peter obviously was in 19, in the First World War, had emerged out of the First World War as the most famous venerated soldier in France. He was the Marshal of France who'd been the man who'd won the Battle of Verdun, who was really adored by the French population. And de Gaulle in the 1920s actually worked for Pétain in his, in, um, on, on his staff, helping him to write a, a history of the French army because de Gaulle had these great literary gifts and Pétain didn't really have literary gifts. So he actually knew Pétain pretty well and had great respect for the soldier of the First World War. But he famously said, it's a, it's a phrase he repeated again and again, or throughout his life actually, Pétain died in 1925. And it's a curious phrase because in 1925 he started working for Pétain directly. I mean, he'd been actually in his regiment before the First World War. But it's in 1925 that Pétain becomes his protégé, uh, he becomes his patron. He's sort of Pétain's protégé in the second half of the 1920s. But de Gaulle said he died in 1925. And what he meant by that, I think, was a kind of ossification in Pétain's way of seeing the world. And that Pétain was viewing the... He was no, an old man who was really viewing the next war as the last war. He was, and one of de Gaulle's big ideas in the 19 about leadership, and in his writings in the interwar years, was what he called the doctrine of circumstances. You always need to rethink. He, one of his bugbears, or what he called slightly grand phrase, but we know what it means, a priori thinking, thinking in boxes. You've got to think out of boxes. You've got to always think that things might not be as they had been before. Circumstances are all. So he felt that Peter had kind of ossified. And I think he also felt that Peter had, in the 1930s, was drifting um, to a kind of pessimism about 
the role of France in the war and in the world. Uh, that is to say, like a lot of French conservatives in the 30s, the belief, well, that France should accept German domination over Eastern Europe, cannot go through another war, and so on. And um, that put de Gaulle, interestingly, not just at odds with Pétain, but with a lot of people with whom he formerly might have been considered to be um, have affinities with, people conservatives, who, for example, um, in the 1930s, if you really believe that Hitler is the enemy, what's the solution? An alliance with Russia, Soviet Union. Many conservatives turn against that idea, and that had been what France had before 1914, turn against the idea because they see Russia as communism. De Gaulle says no, and he says we need an alliance with Russia um, because it's not it's, it's, we don't care whether Russia is a communist regime or not a or czarist regime. Russia is the enemy of Germany. So he's not being ideological. So Pétain, um, and in 1940, their reading of the situation is completely different. Pétain's pessimistic. He thinks realistic, but he's wrong because he's wrong about what the Germans are going to want from France. Pétain is deeply pessimistic, thinks the war is lost, and acting as he thinks patriotically, I'm sure Pétain thinks he's patriotic in this, um, that the way of saving French lives is to end the fighting because the war is lost. And de Gaulle says no. Um, uh, and I suppose, if you want to encapsulate the difference between them perfectly, um, it is that de Gaulle felt that it might be necessary to leave French soil in 1940 to defend an idea of France, to defend the interests of France as a nation. Pétain believed, in a rather almost like a sort of atavistic peasant way, you had to stay on French soil to protect the French. And that difference, you could almost say, obviously, France without the French is an absurd idea. But it is not impossible that sometimes the short-term interests of a country might require uh, loss of life. De Gaulle wasn't sentimental about these things um, because uh, giving up in 1940, leading to occupation, leading to all the things that happened, um, perhaps... Uh, so, so De Gaulle would say, yes, lives may need to be sacrificed, but they need to be sacrificed for France. So that is the encapsulation of the difference between them. Pétain, uh, pessimistic, but also sentimental, you might say, of presenting himself as the defender of the French. De Gaulle saying sometimes there is an idea of France which is more important than the uh, lives of the French at a particular moment. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And de Gaulle in 1940, obviously, as you've mentioned, does come to Britain and becomes the voice of Free France in, in Britain. Um, so can we talk about that, that, the speech, and his speeches around that period in general, and, and then maybe perhaps how he revised them? Yes, I, I do show in the book uh, that, like lots of people, he did a little bit of touching up of the way his speeches were reproduced, um, uh, reprinted afterwards. But I don't think that's fundamentally important, um, and people want to see that can can read the book. But um, I think the, the the point about the speeches is a. I think the most the most important thing is really that the BBC um, creates. Thanks to the BBC, de Gaulle becomes, you might say, the first political leader in history created by the radio, created by modern media. He is a voice. Most French people don't know what he looks like, as I said earlier, and they, they in some sense, um, their relationship to him is the relationship to a voice coming over the airwaves. And that is uh, immensely important because he's the first voice, uh, there were not already, there were little small there were individuals in villages and towns who didn't want to accept defeat or produced little tracts and manifestos and so on but they inevitably could only speak to a few people the goal thanks to the fact that he has the bbc at his disposal can speak uh, to the french and so he becomes the voice of resistance and many late resistors later rather rather resent this they say, well, you know, we, we were against the Germans from day one, and that's true. But the difference between them and de Gaulle is he was also against the Germans from day one, but he had the radio at his disposal. And also he had no illusions about Pétain. Many of the first resistors actually thought that Pétain was secretly behind, uh, that, they, that, he, that he was um, playing a double game he was kind of outwit Hitler. Well, he wasn't really. And the uh, goal who knew Petain knew that. So he becomes this, this voice. 
And it's through that that he becomes uh, an almost mythological figure. I mean, he's not a myth because he exists and the things and his analysis of the course of the war is remarkably um, astute. And, but then when the resistance starts to develop in France, de Gaulle can sort of almost make himself its leader and he makes himself its leader by the fact that he was there first. And as I said a moment ago, even if they resist, sorry, even if they resent it slightly, they have to put up with it. But I think one other thing, just one other point to make about his speeches is they are, they are remarkable because they're a mixture of rhetoric, they're brilliant pieces of political rhetoric, um, wonderfully poetic rhetorical language, but they are also always an appeal to reason. And there's that balance that is part of the theme of my book in de Gaulle's whole career between, and I said at the beginning, between that idea of realism and and uh, realism and grandeur, between sentiment, between classical and the romantic, between the, the reasonable and the passionate. And the speeches are always um, rhetorical. They're always passionate. They're in often very stirring, but they're always argued in one brilliant example of that would be a speech that must have been unbelievably difficult to make when the British um, bombed the French fleet in July after the, the Pétain's government had signed an armistice with Germany. The British were terrified the fleet might fall into German hands. So Churchill took the agonising decision, basically, to bomb the fleet of Britain's previous ally with which he was not at war, killing over a thousand French sailors. And for de Gaulle in London, this was an agonizingly difficult moment. What does he do? And he makes a speech, he waits a few days, which was very, very difficult for him, and he obviously says something like, no Frenchman can feel anything other than deep sadness and anger. But he also explains the necessity for the act, and that's an extraordinary thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and also at this time, um, de Gaulle is pressing um, France's position in terms of its links with the Allies, um, in terms of um, having France uh, seen as a partner in the um, eventual winning of the war. But you show in the book that his relationships with the Allied leaders are anything but smooth. And um, what can you tell us about his relationship with Churchill, with Roosevelt at this time? It's it's a huge topic, uh, you know, which is a subject could be the subject of a book in itself. But I think it could be put very simply is that uh, when Churchill, the relationship between Ch- Churchill and De Gaulle turned sour pretty quickly, and it turned sour because Churchill hadn't realised what De Gaulle was about. What Churchill did when he backed De Gaulle was he backed a Frenchman who was, had come to London and seemed to want to help the Allies win the war. But that's not what de Gaulle wanted to do. He didn't want to help the Allies win to the war. He, and famous, he had a famous exchange with General Spears, one of Churchill's um, aides and, the help, and close to, to, um, to de Gaulle at one stage, when Spears said, why are you, why are you making such difficulties? Why are you being so difficult? Um, you want the Allies to win the war. And, Churchill, and de Gaulle said, I don't want the Allies to win the war. But Spears said, well, you want, he said, I want France to win the war. And uh, de Gaulle said, um, and Spears said, well, that's the same thing. And, and de Gaulle said, no, it's not the same thing at all. He felt that French interests had to be protected as much from her allies as from her enemies, because if he, which 
there, there are always conflicts between allies. There were conflicts between the Americans and the British and between the British and the Americans and the Russians. But of course, uh, in the Gulls case, and that doesn't seem absurd, it doesn't seem absurd that there were disputes between Roosevelt and Churchill on many subjects. But it somehow seems absurd that they were between de Gaulle and Churchill, because de Gaulle was, after all, represented a few, you know, 10, 20, 30, eventually so a thousand men, but he, he was not. But he said, I'm France. And that was the reason, really, for the clash between him and Churchill. He was deeply suspicious. And I think one point to make, the way I put it in the book, uh, is that he bit the hand that fed him to show that France had teeth. So in a sense, because he had nothing, because he was completely dependent on the British, the only thing he had was bloody-mindedness, and that was the weapon he used. With Roosevelt, the relationship was very different, because with Churchill, there was a kind of disappointed passion. I mean, Churchill backed him and, and could see what extraordinary figure he was, but became deeply... Um, um, he became disillusioned, but also just angry that the, the, the goal showed no gratitude. But the goal didn't believe in gratitude. He didn't believe that states, states is not the relationship between states and states is not about gratitude. It's about power relations. Um, with Roosevelt, it was different. Roosevelt was always banking on the Vichy regime coming into the Allied camp. And therefore, for him, it made sense to... And if you believe that, it wasn't an absurd idea. It was turned out to be wrong. Um, so he was banking on Vichy, and therefore, in that plan, the goal was didn't fit in, as it were. And then after that, really, I think uh, Roosevelt just didn't... Uh, he, he never... Even when it became clear that Vichy was... Once it was clear that that strategy had failed, he still couldn't give up... Um, his suspicion of de Gaulle, that de Gaulle was a proto-fascist or de Gaulle was a proto-communist or de Gaulle was going to become a dictator. Um, there was going to be irrationality. People talk about the irrationality of de Gaulle often, you know, de Gaulle. But actually, if it, in the relationship between Roosevelt and de Gaulle, if there's anybody who behaved like a completely irrational madman, it was Roosevelt was not in other respects, but in their relationship, it was Roosevelt who was the irrational, irrational one, and de Gaulle who was the rational one, in fact. But even to the very end, 1944, when Eisenhower is desperately wanting to work with de Gaulle, because he knows that D-Day is going to be easier if the Allies can bank on the support of the French resistance, and that means working through de Gaulle, still Roosevelt is saying, well, very grudgingly saying, well, you can, but don't think de Gaulle is the only person you have to work with. He just, uh, and if there's a rational explanation to it, and possibly there is, it is that actually he did understand that de Gaulle wanted to be there in 1945, 44, 45, as the representative of a non-defeated nation. And one of the things he wanted to do was to hold on to French power in the world, hold on to the French empire. And we know that Roosevelt very much had a plan for the, basically, the, the end, what he would have liked to, the dismantling of the British and the French empires. And perhaps if there is a rationality, if there's reason in the madness of Roosevelt, it is that he saw quite rightly that de Gaulle was going to be an obstacle to that. Nevertheless, de Gaulle does become that symbol. In 1945, he processes on the Elysee as a, and becomes the, the leader of the provisional government. Um, so what, what 
what can you tell us about de Gaulle after the the victory for the Allies and then his um, he steps down from from his power at that point? Yeah, well, he he um, uh, he's leader of the provisional government between 42, 44 and forty six, and then he kind of breaks with the political class. And his break with the political class is because what he wants is uh, the setting up of a political system which will be much more like the one that France has today, not a return to the endless merry-go-round of weak governments that France had had in the Third Republic. French politicians, however, um, are very suspicious. They, they admired what de Gaulle had done in the war, but they're very suspicious of military men in peacetime. There's a whole tradition of French politics suspicious of figures like like Bonaparte or like General Boulanger. These are military figures who have ambitions to seize political power. And so there was enormous suspicion of de Gaulle. And so the system that's set up in 1946, what becomes known as the Fourth Republic, is a essentially weak parliamentary republic. Um, that's to say one in which there is no strong presidential figure, because there's a fear that that's such a figure might become another Pétain, might become another Boulanger, might become another Napoleon. And de Gaulle, uh, disgusted by this, resigns. And I'm sure when he resigns, he thinks they're going to call him back almost immediately. He completely miscalculates. He's not at that stage a very adept politician. So he thinks they're all going to call him back. And what happened, this sort of story about him look, looking out the window, expecting crowds demonstrating in his name outside, and there's no one, and uh, he's disappointed. So he's failed. He played the game very badly there. He didn't know, he wasn't, a, he, he had been a, an amazingly successful political figure negotiating with Roosevelt, Churchill, up to a point, Stalin a little bit. But when it came, comes to the normal game of domestic politics, he turned out to be very bad. He played a bad hand. And then he sets up a political movement to bring him back to power. And his, he, he becomes sort of wild in his predictions that um, uh, the Republic is going to collapse, that France is going to dissolve into anarchy, etc., etc. Well, it doesn't happen. Things aren't great, but basically uh, the French Fourth Republic, despite the Cold War, despite fighting colonial war in Indochina, it sort of struggles along and actually French economic growth starts off, thanks to the Marshall Plan and other things to take off. So de Gaulle becomes a sort of figure in exile, um, hurling you know, insults against the pygmy politicians. But by 1952-53, the political movement he set up to come back to power has failed and he goes into a kind of, well, he goes sort of internal exile. He retreats to his country house in Colombay and starts to write his memoirs. Um, and he writes his memoirs. Writing his memoirs is not an innocent act. It's writing the myth. It's, it's another political gesture. So his view is either it'll help him come back to power or at the very least it'll create him as a political, as a, as a legendary figure for French history. These are uh, memoirs in which he often refers to himself in the third person. So it's General de Gaulle. De Gaulle writes about he, himself as he. So um, he's writing in this, he's building up this, this mythology of himself. Um, and it, it does help to restore his reputation, but he's generally seen as a figure of the past. And it could well be that if there hadn't been a crisis in Algeria in 1958, that, that is what the career would have ended. Um, the historian uh, Robert Rhodes-James once wrote a book called A Study in Failure about 
Winston Churchill up to 1940. Well, you could say, you couldn't quite say a study in failure for de Gaulle up to 1958, because after all, there had been the Second World War. But certainly, uh, there's a whole nother career to come, which might not have come had it not been for Algeria. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting um, question in your book when you um, you consider his reputation in some arenas as a decolonizer. Um, and could you maybe talk us through the events of uh, during the War of um, Algerian Independence and um, de Gaulle's role in that, and how 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 that reputation can be perhaps questioned? Yeah, I think my book does. I mean, I think one of the sort of revisionist uh, arguments of the book definitely is to question this reputation that the goal built for himself as uh, a prophet of and then actor of decolonization. Um, if we just go back a bit, in 1944, when he came back to liberated France, he was determined at all costs to hold on to France's empire in Indochina. And before he'd left power in 1946, he basically dragged the French into an unwin what proved to be an unwinnable war in Indochina, the war that, of course, the Americans um, uh, follow uh, in, uh, in Indochina. We mean Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. So he was far from a prophet there. He realized he'd made, because he was always a realist, he realized he made a mistake and he changed his view. But nonetheless, it would be wrong um, to overplay this idea that the goal could see everything, because he couldn't. He didn't predict the end of empire. And in Algeria, Algeria is a very different case, because Algeria wasn't technically part of the French Empire. It was, I suppose an analogy would be, it was more like um, Northern Ireland in relation to Britain. That's to say, it was technically part of, um, constitutionally, legally, part of the part of France. Um, although, in fact, the Muslim population didn't have full rights there. But nonetheless, technically it was. People used to say that the Mediterranean runs through France like the Seine runs through Paris. So th that's what made Algeria so more, much more traumatic for the French, because it's not just giving up a bit of empire, it's giving up a bit of France. In fact, Algeria had been French for longer the Nice, for example, since Nice had only been French since that bit of France since 1859, 1860. Algeria had been French since 1830. And there were one million French, uh, the Europe, people of European origin in Algeria who felt it was their country. Um, somebody like the famous writer Albert Camus, he was, he was one from one of those uh, European families in Algeria that lived there for generations. They felt it was as much as their country as, say, the, the um, Orangeman field about Northern Ireland, if, that's just, if you take that analogy. Um, so that's a very different case. Now, when de Gaulle comes back in 1958, he comes back because there's a political crisis, because the army and the European settlers in Algeria, let's not call them settlers, the European population of Algeria, were called the Pieds-Noirs, believe that the politicians in France are going to sell them out. The war's been going on in Algeria now for four years. It started in 54. It's becoming more, and it's the French army's having to resort to torture. The Algerian Liberation Front is using terrorism very effectively and so on. On the international stage, France has been criticized and so on. So it's really, it's, it's like a mini civil war, Algeria. It's developing into something like that. And when de Gaulle comes uh, so there's a crisis. 
And de Gaulle's brilliance in that crisis, which we don't really have time to talk about, is to make the army think that he's going to protect Algeria as French and to make the politicians think that he's going to protect them from the army. So everybody, basically, he's very mysterious about what his intentions are. And whereas he'd been a very poor politician in 1946, he proved to be a very, very skillful politician in 1958. Hence also the bitterness of the French, of the Piennois, who felt that he had betrayed them. His first visit to Algiers after coming back to power he goes and he says in a famous speech, I have understood you, and they all cheer. But they all think, what has he understood? And no one actually really knows what he's understood. But what I think I show in my one reading of de Gaulle, this is quite common, is that he came back, he knew exactly what he wanted to do with Algeria, but he couldn't do it immediately. He had to bide his time and gradually win the French population over to the idea of, Italian, of Algerian independence. I don't think that's true. I think what I try to show in the book is I don't think he knew himself what he wanted to do with Algeria. I think... The only thing is certain is he didn't want an independent Algeria and he didn't believe that Algeria fully linked to France was a viable possibility. So he wanted something in between. And it actually took him quite a time to realise that Algeria was going to be independent. And so, uh, but his success, I think, is not his um, prophetic gifts in this case, but that once he decided to do it, once he'd realized that Algiers, Algeria would and must become independent, he acted with a kind of single-minded, ruthless determination. And then he wrote a script which says, I've always said it, and it's the best thing for France, and France has now got a new destiny in Europe. So if you want to compare with America and Vietnam, America lived the Vietnam War as a traumatic defeat. Algeria was a traumatic defeat for the French. But de Gaulle, brilliantly, by words, really, by the narrative, he created this, um, I think we could say myth, that he'd always intended this, that he couldn't be done immediately, and that it was the best for France. Well, it was probably the best for France. That's, but uh, So his skill was in the words... Um, and it took him four years, and it took him four years, which led to um, uh, something approaching a civil war. There were famously, um, there, there were two almost successful assassination attempts, of which the Day of the Jackal is a kind of um, a composite of, of a whole series of assassination attempts against a goal. And the hatred, the hatred that certain people on uh, the right who wanted to hold on to French Algeria felt for de Gaulle is something um, which is inimaginable. They, these were people who, if they could have done, would have actually torn his body apart to, it, with their bare hands. It's a hatred that uh, is much, it's forgotten now, actually, and obviously now it's passing. So um, it was an act of, of courage, but let's not say that he knew what he was going to do. And I think my book tries to show in some detail that he was feeling his way and that he actually didn't, if you look at it in the end, it took him four years and he inherited. The war had been going on four years when he came back to power with a much in a regime which had nothing like as much power as he had. It took him another four years with all the power at his disposal and um, at the cost of terrible bitterness and terrible sense of betrayal 
um, and enormous civil conflict. The third arm, if I can call it that, of your book, is um, de Gaulle's foundation, laying of the foundation for the Fifth Republic, which obviously still um, echoes in France to this day. What can you tell us about that and, and his legacy? Well, I think I think um, I, I already mentioned at the beginning that you know, if you had to summarise his achievements, the the in some sense um, uh, overcoming the historical division in. The, the deep divide in French political culture between um, the revolutionary tradition and you might say the monarchical tradition. Um, one of his achievements is having overcome that and creating institutions that function effectively, I think, not to say. But having said that, uh, the, fifth, the Fourth Republic was far from the completely dysfunctional, incompetent regime that the Gaullists and the Gaulle like to claim. In fact, France did rather well under the Fourth Republic. So it's not to say that is the answer, um, or that France, French history has now come to an political history has now come to an end with the Fifth Republic. But uh, it it did end, it has ended any fundamental um, division about the kind of political setup France should have. But I think the, the other thing one should talk about for the, just, just on for the record in the, in the period of the 60s, and it, it is a legacy which still counts, was um, really taking France on an extraordinary new um, uh, road of foreign policy, of assertion of French national independence. Let's just take one thing which nobody in France uh, questions today. I mean, really, whether from the extreme left to the extreme right, no one questions, less actually than they question in the same in this country, the existence of an independent French nuclear deterrent. That was, uh, the French were developing a nuclear deterrent when de Gaulle came back to power in 58. But it was, con it was not necessarily conceived of as an independent, autonomous. It was the French were thinking about it becoming European or whatever. Um, de Gaulle, against most of the political class, um, insisted that France had. Now, it may may not be a good thing. I'm not making a judgment here, but really, no one questions today that that action. He took the French out of NATO. He. Um, Condemned, uh, he he wanted, in a sense, to free France from what he felt was an unhealthy um, dependence on the United States. And there are different ways of reading that. Um, one pe some people read him as a rather um, slightly absurd anti-American, um, but I think there there, there is a more. Uh, I, I I think. Well, let's let's look at the situation today. One of the things de Gaulle said was nations must always, he was a cynic, he was a pessimist about international relations. He was not a sentimentalist. So his line was, the day may come when uh, America may no longer feel that it is in her interest to defend Europe from whatever threats she faces. States must always be in a position to defend themselves. And actually, if you look at uh, Trump's America today, and already it was under Obama, in fact, the French, the Americans, to some extent, distancing themselves from their fate being bound up with that of Europe. Um, it, was, it's, it, it was not an absurd uh, prediction or ambition. And when Dominique de Villepin, Chirac's um, uh, foreign minister, refused to um, play any part in the Anglo-American operation against Iraq. 
And he famously made a speech in the United Nations uh, denouncing, basically, well, uh, uh, attacking uh, the, implicitly the, the policy of the, the Bush government. It could have been de Gaulle speaking from the grave. So what well, the point I'm making here is there is a legacy also from de Gaulle which doesn't, is not always positive, of suspicion, I suppose, about what he calls the Anglo-Saxons um, and a legacy that the role of the French or French leaders is to defend uh, the, the independence. And although people don't use that word grandeur any longer, it seems a bit old-fashioned, well, some do, but nonetheless, it's left its traces. Um, and I think um, in that sense, he still marks the way the French are today. That was Julian Jackson. A Certain Idea of France, The Life of Charles de Gaulle, is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. In the US, it's also available, published by Belknap Press, and titled simply De Gaulle. And look out for a review of the book in our September issue, which is on sale now, and also includes pieces on medieval medicine, a forgotten World War II death railway, and Victorian vegetarians, among other things. Look out for it in all good retailers and our many digital formats. Well, that's about it for today, but we'll be back on Thursday to discuss some of the most important women in history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.